Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Science Rolls with Bill Nye, and more. Plus, get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Just $4.99 a month. Go to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code THEWILDLIFE for one month free. Hello, everybody. This is Devin Boker, and you are listening to The Wildlife. According to our latest count, this is episode 99. Episode 99, which means we're one away from 100, and we've yet to have Ryan Reynolds on to chat about real-life Wolverines in comparison to the one played by Hugh Jackman. It's sort of our ultimate long-term goal. And um, if it means we have to hold out for episode 100, I'm okay with that. Ryan, if you're out there, you know what to do. And while it might be a major bummer that he's not on for episode 99, turn that frown upside down, because today is all about the world's happiest animal. But before we get into it, we need to say thank you to the people who support the wildlife, who, who support us every month with payments as little as a dollar. Um, and you know, I just have to say it. If, if you do the math, it's almost about uh, 25 cents an episode um, if, if you do do a dollar a month. But um, these people, they, they really keep us going. So thank you, Karen Bingston, Paul over at the Varmints podcast, Cody Mathis, the folks over at Mad Scientist Pod, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin Brown, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Tara Peterson, Zach Stednick, Vikram Baliga, who is the host of Planthropology and the Plant Prof, Whitney Vandeveer, Mike Henry, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, Megan Gariani, Matt Capel, and Christina Boker. We quite literally could not do this show without you, and um, I don't think we could say thank you enough. This whole thank you once an episode is not enough. We owe you a lot. If you want to join that esteemed group of people, you can do that at patreon.com slash the wildlife. Or you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash the wildlife. Now on to today's subject. You've definitely seen them before, but you might not know their name. Sort of like an actor that you've definitely seen before, like Bruce Greenwood or, or Mark Strong or Alan Tudyk or... Oh, I don't know, Kevin McKidd, I could go on. But that all changed in 2012 when a man with a smartphone visited Rottnest Island and snapped a selfie with the teddy bear-sized marsupial with an adorable grin. We're talking about quokkas. Up until that moment in 2012, most people outside of Australia had never even heard of the quokka. Since then, over the past decade, they've repeatedly broken the internet. Ever since, tourism to the island has boomed, and so has the quokka population, even while the mainland quokka population has declined. These cuddly-looking critters are only found in southwestern Australia, and their populations on the mainland are struggling. Mainland quokkas have lost 50% of their habitat in just the past 200 years. They are one major event away from extinction. Fires, a changing climate, not to mention habitat fragmentation, and predation from invasive species like foxes and feral cats. 
Scientists are saying if we can't shift the trajectory of climate change, quokkas will likely go extinct by 2070. For the island quokkas, it's a different story. They first encountered people back in 1658 when Dutch explorers mistook them for large rats. Rot nest is actually Dutch for rat's nest. Today, some might say they are beginning to behave like rats. See, quokkas adapted to be nocturnal, but these rodent-like residents of rot nest have begun to alter their behavior. They're more active in the day when tourists and their snacks are also more abundant. A study in 2016 found that quokkas in areas of the island that are highly developed for tourism are in significantly better condition compared to those in less disturbed habitat types. Sounds a little contradictory. But if you think about it, they basically have access to a year-round buffet of crumbs and junk food tossed by tourists. However, even the island quokkas might not be the happiest animals on earth for long. While they might be faring better in these portions of the island, they're also living in more condensed conditions. If you paid attention to 2020, you know that density can be dangerous. If too many animals become concentrated in one area, they could end up competing for food, and any disease that hits a group could spread rapidly. And when they become too used to humans, there are risks. And right now, they are tourists' favorite selfie props. But even with that said, not every visitor to the island is so kind to the quokka. One man in 2017 was charged after throwing one into the ocean. And two French backpackers also faced charges in 2015 for setting a rotten-ass quokka on fire. But quokkas aren't the first animal to be at risk of extinction. In fact, 99.99% of all species that have ever existed have gone extinct. In the world of conservation, folks are constantly trying to look to the future. How do you ensure that a species will survive? How can you predict future impacts? But what about looking into the past to save species in the present? That's exactly what our guest for the day is doing, Dr. Larissa DeSantis, conservation biologist at Vanderbilt University. Well, she's also a vertebrate paleontologist and associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Vanderbilt. If you're not familiar with Vanderbilt, that's located in Nashville, Tennessee, which is quite far away from Australia and Rottnest Island. DeSantis has earned degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, Yale University, and the University of Florida. Through the study of fossil mammals, she determines how they respond to ancient climate change, potential reasons why they went extinct, and the long-term consequences of both climate change and large animal extinctions on a diversity of plants and animals, including predators and their prey. She's the recipient of a National Science Foundation Career Award, conducts research on all continents except Antarctica, and the majority of her work is explicitly aimed at helping conservationists better understand ecosystems past and present. When she's not in the lab, field, or classroom, she's involved in scientific and public outreach in her local community. And as the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Distinguished Lecturer for North America and member at large of the Executive Committee, She's published more than 50 papers and book chapters, and her work has been featured on Curiosity Stream, National Geographic Wild, the Discovery Channel, radio shows, and has received global news coverage. She is a force. Uh, what exactly is a quokka? 
Um, so a quokka is a marsupial uh, mammal, and it is one of the smallest wallabies. Um, it's part of a family that's called Macropodidae, um, which essentially uh, sort of means Bigfoot. Um, and that includes things like kangaroos, wallabies, tree kangaroos, et cetera, and, and also the quokka. Um, it's what we call a monospecific genus, meaning it is one species in that genus. So it's fairly unique, right? Um, there's nothing else that's in that genus, just the quokka. And um, it's really, so, okay, I guess a little bit of a description um, for those of you who haven't Googled it. Um, it's fairly small. Um, it's sort of the size of, say, like a basketball um, and weighs somewhere between about five and 10 pounds, roughly. Um, so think of a large rabbit or cat sized. And um, what's sort of fun is it has a, a long-ish tail um, that's rat-like, right? So if you just saw the, ta the tail, you might think really large rat. And the quokka um, is a name that's derived from the Ningara Aboriginal um, word um, uh, for the quokka. So have, have you always been interested in science? I've always had a curiosity for the natural world and for science in general. And, you know, sort of looking back, there were elements of, you know, curiosity that, that were able to be fostered. When she was younger, she took a dinosaur class at the Natural History Museum. Another one on robots and um, on snakes. So all of that was sort of in me. Um, but I will say that when I went off to college, I was sort of committed to being a political science major, going to law school, and actually going into politics, which I'm really glad I didn't do. Instead, she stumbled upon something else entirely. So I was at University of Chicago as a freshman and... Um, there you have to take, you know, your physics, your bio. And so I was in my, my biology sequence. She was just about to start the third quarter of the sequence, which it's this immunology class. And I walked into the class and the professor wasn't engaging, didn't have a textbook. I don't think had ever taught that class before. Um, and I knew after the first day that it was not going to go well. So she leaves class and as she's walking out, she ran into a friend and she said, Hey, you want to check out this paleobiology class? I went, sure, why not? And I walked into the class and I was just sort of captivated instantly. Um, I was really interested in political theory. And so as soon as I heard all of this evolutionary theory, I went, wow, this is just amazing. I didn't know that this was something that, that people actually did, right? You know, you watch Indiana Jones, who are the archaeologists, you watch the Jurassic Park movies, you know. Um, but you don't really think that there are actual paleontologists who study fossils as as actual jobs in this day and age, and there are. And um, it was interesting because I actually tried really hard not to be a paleontologist. But it seems like life had other plans. For one, she also grew up going to the La Brea Tar Pits. Oh, it's the most amazing place. I mean, I still am in such awe every time I go. Um, not only are there fossils literally coming out of, you know, this, this asphaltum, um, in the middle of Los Angeles, but there's so many of them. With the La Brea tar pits, it's quite literally a group of tar pits, actually in urban Los Angeles. It's natural asphalt, which is also called uh, asphaltum, that seeped up from the ground in the area for tens of thousands of years. It's often covered with dust, leaves, or water, and over many centuries, the tar has preserved the bones of trapped animals. The George C. Page Museum is dedicated to researching those tar pits and displaying specimens from the animals that died there. 
is also a nationally registered natural landmark. There is absolutely a ton of fascinating history and scientific discoveries and things connected to the La Brea tar pits. And um, as much as I want to go on at length talking about it right here, right now, uh, I'm also seeing an opportunity to do an entire episode about the La Brea tar pit. So for now, um, if you want to know more, you're just going to have to look it up. So what you see on the exhibit floor is just a fraction of what we actually have in the collections. Um, so if you can just imagine the entire length of the museum has these long hallways and there's actually two of them right next to each other and they're just filled with fossils drawer after drawer after drawer. And so it is this most amazing site because it allows us to understand things that are typically rare. So for example, you know, uh, you're very likely to see a tree when you go outside, right? Maybe slightly less likely to see a deer and definitely a lot less likely to see something like a coyote. So there are fewer coyotes than there are deer because, of course, uh, if they're eating the deer, you can't have more of something than there is for food. That availability of food is absolutely essential to having a population in the first place. So therefore, there are also not more deer than you have plants. That tends to get preserved in the fossil record. More plants, slightly less herbivores, and definitely less predators. So we tend to get lots of herbivores and very few carnivores at most fossil sites. Um, but at the tar pits, what's really amazing is it actually acts as sort of a trap. So an herbivore gets stuck in the tar, whether it's the carcass that's decaying or there's sort of movement or, or thrashing trying to get free, whatever it might be, the carnivores are attracted to it. And then they subsequently get trapped. And so it actually creates a system system in which you have more carnivores getting trapped than herbivores. And so it's one of the few places in the world that we can actually understand um, and study, you know, large numbers of things like saber-toothed cats, dire wolves. The real ones, not the ones from Game of Thrones. And by the way, these were actually in the headlines recently. Um, I, I believe it was being said that uh, dire wolves are not genetically related to modern wolves, which is super cool. Um, you know, all of these amazing sort of creatures that lived a long time ago. And yet, not all that long ago. I mean, it's a blip in the relation to history. I'm involved in a, a, a very large project right now where we are looking at last 50,000 years. We're radiocarbon dating numerous specimens, and we're actually um, being able to understand, you know, what did this animal do at this moment in time? What sort of morphology did it have? Um, what was its diet? Um, what was the climate like? Because if we can radiocarbon date it, we can know what the climate was from other climate proxies. And sort of how do these animals respond to changing sort of environments and climates over time? And then, you know, why did some of them go extinct? But this begs a question. If you can use these sorts of principles, these technologies to figure out how species declined in the past, could you use them to prevent a species decline today? So I sort of got bitten by the bug. I started preparing dinosaur bones um, while I was at University of Chicago. Uh, I ended up transferring to UC Berkeley where I sort of instantly um, started preparing fossils again. I couldn't get away from them. But at the same time, I was also studying sort of a, a resource management or conservation and land management. And I was really torn between having to choose between my, what I saw as sort of a selfish love of the fossil record um, and a more sort of noble 
uh, career in conservation and trying to actually save species today. And so I did really feel this sort of tug of war and um, it led me to actually do a master's in environmental management at Yale. And while I was there, I really missed paleontology. I really, it was the first time I had been away from it. Um, and I, I was sort of having a little bit of a crisis of faith. What do I do? Do I go into conservation, which is important? Do I study paleontology and might not get a job? She also enjoyed education. And so I sort of explored all my options. I, uh, after I graduated with my um, master's in environmental management, I actually became a real Miss Frizzle. Uh, I look very much like her to start with, but I drove a 38-foot Winnebago with dinosaur exhibits in it for the American Museum of Natural History. And we would bring these, um, this movable museum essentially to you know, the five boroughs in New York City and the tri-state area and you know, do programs with school kids um, and community events. And so it was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had in my life. And really great, but I, I also started missing the research end of it. I love the education side. And so I was really fortunate when a few things happened. One is um, I was really interested in studying sort of the paleoecology of animals. So the ecology of these animals in the past and using certain tools, things like stable isotopes, which I can talk more about. Um, long story short, my PhD advisor was looking for someone who had an understanding of forests and forest ecosystems. And I had this mm -hmm. whole degree in like forestry and resource management, but also was interested in, in, these, in these mammals. And that was perfect. And he was also really involved um, with education reach. And so I was able to actually you know, pursue all of these areas at the same time. And fortunately for me, um, this the field started really coming together. Welcome to the field of conservation paleobiology. And this is where we use the fossil record to ask questions of direct relevance to conservationists. And that is what I like to think that my research program is primarily focused on. So um, I can now sort of you know, selfishly marry my two passions, but at the same time, I can also, um, you know, bring relevance to the fossil record and use these fossils to better understand how animals, you know, have and may respond to climate change in the future. I wanted to know what happened to mammals when things got really tough, when things were really drying out um, and you had extreme aridification. And so you can't look at Florida when you're answering that question. You really have to go to Australia. Enter Australia. So uh, my first experience working in Australian paleontology, I had this giant target on my back. Didn't really realize it uh, at, the, at the time I started, but definitely realized it once I got into the project. Cuddy Springs. C-U-D-D-I-E. Not like cut cuddy, but like cuddy cuddy. Like kid cuddy. When I first actually sort of arrived, someone asked me, well, what, what camp are you in or what side are you on? And I said, I, I'm not on any side. I want to, you know, look at the science and evaluate the data and make conclusions. And they said, oh, good, you're on our side. So what's the controversy? People are sort of usually in one of different camps. They're, they're usually saying, okay, humans caused the extinction of these large animals and um, climate did not, or, or they're saying uh, very clearly that climate is the main driver of the decline in these large animals. Here's what we know. What we know about Australia is that, well, it's dry. And it's dried out pretty significantly over several millions of years. So in the Miocene, it was heavily forested. There were 
forests in large parts of Australia where desert is today. But there's also more pronounced what we would call aridification or the drying out of the continent. And that's happened over the last several hundred thousands of years, but even more so in the past several thousands of years when humans were present. So from about 100,000 years till today, we've seen massive aridification. It's been pretty dramatic in some places. And so I wanted to see if I could look at what the impacts of that drying out were on these animals. By looking into the fossil record, they were able to not only determine what these ancient kangaroo were eating, but how much and when shifts in food sources occurred. So as it was getting drier, we actually saw that these animals were not eating certain resources. They stopped eating certain C4 resources. And these C4 plants that they stopped eating were pretty sure was saltbush. And saltbush, like the name implies, is very salty. And so, you know, if you have not, if you've been out hiking for two days and you ran out of water, the last thing you're gonna get out of your backpack is a bag of Cheetos, right? You're gonna try to eat an apple or something to quench your thirst. And saltbush requires drinking of water to actually eat that resource. And so what we actually find is a lot of um, and, or a lot of kangaroos that end up going extinct, including this thing called the giant short-faced kangaroo. Um, you know, we're eating you know lots of of saltbush at different times, and they stopped eating that saltbush as it got really dry. And so, um, you know, that could be because watering holes are drying up, watering holes are further apart, and these animals are going to be more vulnerable to actually even going to these watering holes because of predation, predation by potentially people, but even crocodiles or other things. Um, so as it's getting drier, there's a shift away from this saltbush resource, which is pretty heavily consumed by lots of different animals in these ecosystems. And they're now having to compete more for similar resources. So we argued that while we can't, our data don't speak to whether humans played a role or not, what they do show is that climate likely actually stressed these populations or potentially was a driver um, in sort of increasing competition amongst each other um, at this fossil locality in the past. So that was actually my first sort of introduction to Australia. Um, and since then, I was hooked. Enter the quokka. So ever since I went there in 2007, I've been going back um, either every year or every other year uh, to do research, and it sort of expanded. And kind of coming, coming back to the quokka, um, you know, I was at a conference in Perth, and I had one day off, and it was sort of, I had landed on a Saturday, I had a Sunday to kind of relax before the meeting started on Monday, and I said, okay, I'm going to do what every other tourist to Perth does and that's hop on the Rottnest Express and go over to Rottnest Island and and see if I can find one of these quokkas. Did she see any? Well, no. The, you know, it probably had something to do with the fact that I docked at noon. I had an hour on the island before I hopped on a little boat that went around the island. Um, and it was, you know, extremely hot in the day. Most of these quokkas are going to be taking shelter at this time. Um, and this was also, you know, back in 2007. Um, so quokka populations were a bit different and, and I probably didn't have a very good search picture for them. Um, but least to say I looked and looked and looked, didn't see any, but now every time I go, uh, you can't walk, you know, five feet without seeing you know, numerous quokkas. You can't walk through the settlement without actually sometimes trying to avoid quokkas. Um, so it's, they're, they're a pretty amazing animal. And 
you know, it was sort of my initial sort of trip learning about them. And then also sort of thinking broadly about, you know, is there something that I as a paleontologist can help contribute to our understanding of quokkas through the types of tools that I use? And it was through that sort of, um, you know, process that uh, myself and an undergraduate student, um, Eleanor Schultz, um, got involved with this quokka research. They're, they're interesting to me. Like, well, number one, anytime that there is uh, a mammal population on an island like that, I, I just kind of find it interesting. But um, especially... In this case, from what I know, they, they appear to be relatively concentrated there. Uh, the other thing that I'm, I, I might be wrong about, but it, it seems like from what you're saying, I mean, roughly 2007 was probably mm, right around the time where, where the, you know, the quokka selfie kind of thing started to, started to pick up and it's increased in recent years. And it sounds like from what you're saying, so is the population. So, yeah. yeah they're, they're super cute. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend doing the quokka selfie. I think that there's obviously yeah. there's been some conservation value that's come out of their popularity, um, but mm -hmm. people actually recommend against doing the quokka selfie for their sake and also for your sake. So um, even mm -hmm. though they they appear to be sort of smiling, um, they've actually been known to uh, bite uh, individuals on the mm -hmm. island. There's usually a few dozen cases of, of quokka bites um, that occur every year. Um, they're also known to carry diseases. So they have things mm -hmm. like, um, very, you know, various parasites and whatnot. Um, they also have, uh, about 50% of quokkas on rottenness actually carry salmonella. So oh. between the tapeworms, oh, flatworms, fun. salmonella, um, <laughs> you know, there's a few reasons why you, you probably wouldn't want to actually touch them in the wild and they really don't want yeah. to be touched in the wild. And it's really better for them to sort of eat um, sort of the, you know, vegetation that's in their natural diet. And unfortunately, a lot of the quokkas are really getting habituated to humans um, to, yeah. to a really extreme point. So for example, I was there once with my family and a quokka literally pursued my husband who had a bag of you know popcorn and was just walking along and kept following him for a good half a mile until I think it realized <laughs> it wasn't going to get anything from him um, and they'll even hop up on tables and sort of try to get into your food if you if you eat and you walk away for a second though there will definitely be a quokka there taking advantage of whatever you've left behind so um, they are as the Australians say, you know, cheeky little buggers and um, <laughs> are, are, you know, kind of taking advantage of the high number of tourists and their, their cute nature, I think. One of, the, one of the things, I mean, there's just an overall trend in people trying to get selfies with animals and it uh, ending very poorly, especially at like Yellowstone with bison. I don't know why you would try that, but enough people do. Um, what, what is it about the quokka? Is it, is it um, I mean, were they um as approachable before or is that more something that's come with the habituation kind of thing because it just seems like people they i mean they get right on the ground face to face you know almost touching not touching but almost touching and i can't think of really any animal that you could do that with sure so a few things um this is all happening on rottenness island and on rottenness island there are very few predators for the quokka which is one of the reasons it's doing so well um, really, the, you know, there's no foxes or um, significant cat populations to uh, mm -hmm. predate on the quokkas. 
once in a while, there will be predation by things like an osprey or a dugite. And the dugites sure. are these venomous snakes, um, but they primarily um, target juveniles. And so for the most part, they don't have to worry about predators. And so they're not as evasive as they are on places like the mainland or even, you know, need most animals need to be. Um, and so, you know, they've just sort of gotten used to uh, people on the island and there have been people on the island for quite okay. some time. Um, it was a... Uh, um, it was actually an Aboriginal prison for a while. Um, they were sometimes wow. hunted um, then, uh, and they have been hunted in the past, um, but it's been sort of a primarily used for holiday and recreation now by the Rottnest Island Authority. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're just sort of used to and habituated with people for good or for bad. Um, and so it, it does pro provide an opportunity to get pretty close to these quokkas. And, you know, what I would sort of recommend to folks who want to do the quokka selfie is, you know, to, if you're really committed to doing that, then at least use a selfie stick. But ideally, you know, do sort of the old fashioned thing where you have your, your friend or your mate uh, take a photo of you. You know, you can stand, you can socially distance yourself to these quokkas and stand, you know, six feet from them, have someone take a photo uh, <laughs> and you'll have a nice memento. And that's probably a much safer way, both for you and for the animal themselves. But but part of the reason sure. people are so interested in them is they, they basically look like they're smiling right at you, right? So yeah. who can resist yeah. this animal who looks so intently like it wants to be there with you in this photograph? Yeah. And, Very you know, annoying. part of that is just sort of coincidental, right? The way their, their mouth is formed, mm -hmm. the way when they pant a little bit, they stick their tongue out. Um, they have this just sort of innately cute expression on their face, but it doesn't necessarily reflect uh, their, how they feel about you doing the quokka selfie. <laughs> uh, the population has increased, um, it, it, so it's fluctuated and it has sort of also a sort of natural cycle. Um, quokka populations naturally sort of increase um, due to reproduction. And then you have sort of a crash usually near the end of the summertime, beginning of the fall, due to the lack of sufficient water on the island and also sort of the um, nutrition, the lack of nutrition and vegetation um, uh, uh, at that time of year. And what's, what's actually also really interesting is quokkas on Rottnest Island typically um, reproduce once a year. And that's because uh, they're unable to reproduce sort of in the, um, you know, November to January timeframe. But if you take a quokka from Rottnest Island and you bring it to say a zoo in Perth, after a few years, um, they will actually begin to reproduce twice a year. So even within that same individual, they will switch and become acclimatized to that, that local environment and those, re that resor those resources that are available. And ultimately, animals have three options, right? They can either move, they can adapt, or they go extinct. And in the past, adaptation was possible in many scenarios because you had changes happening over more gradual time period. So when the climates did warm or cool, it was happening over prolonged periods of time, not sort of on the time scales we're observing today. Um, and then, you know, the other thing we've learned about uh, just sort of animal responses to climate change is, you know, animals that can move and can move further distances, um, they have a better shot of being able to track those different sort of habitats. And what's worrisome is when um, the animals can't move or plants, for example, have a very hard time moving. They have certain dispersal mechanisms 
that limit their ability to move north, for example. So, you know, an animal might be able to move north, but if their preferred habitat and the types of plants that they're used to eating, et cetera, aren't able to move north on the same time frame, then that can also be problematic. Here's the thing about quokkas. While most people are familiar with them visually, not by name for sure, and mostly in relation to these selfies, there's another reason that they've uh, broken the internet in the past. Apparently, the rumor goes that quokkas are known for throwing their babies at a predator to escape. We ask Dr. DeSantis this question, and she gives us an answer right after the break. Hi there from the Hikopper's crew. Hikopper's mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind, and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves, and in nature. From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails. So uh, there's another reason that quokkas have, have uh, gone pretty viral. And, um, you know, it, it's something that came after, you know, the really the big spike in the selfies um, circulated a bunch you know, like on social media and BuzzFeed and a bunch of different places, this uh, claim that, you know, uh, the world's cutest animal or the, you know, the world's so-called happiest animal has a dark side and they throw their children, their their babies at predators to, to escape. Is that true? Okay. So this is a little, it's a little complicated. Um, and sure. I did look this up from the primary scientific literature because I have never observed this behavior myself. Um, I would be, most people would be unlikely to observe any sort of behavior like this because where people are coming into contact with quokkas is primarily on Rottenness Island. Um, there's mm -hmm. very small populations that occur in the mainland and it's very hard to see them. Um, and they're, they're heavily protected in these areas. So uh, this comes from a study where they were actually trapping quokkas to study them for research purposes. Um, and mm -hmm. so they, they trapped this one quokka and noticed a behavior in which um, as they approached the trap, um, essentially the pouch opened up and the sort of Joey kind of was, you know, ejected from this pouch and began sort of making sounds and, and also kind of squirming on the ground. And so um, the researchers don't believe that this was sort of an accident because um, there's lots of muscles in the pouch and, and they know this because yeah. when they anesthetize the quokkas, um, it becomes very relaxed. And so, mm -hmm. you know, from, you know, watching this scenario, they sort of deduce that this, that the, the mother potentially sort of ejected out the young and that you have this kind of young squirming on the ground, attracting attention to it, that that could have been um, a way to attract predators. And it's kind of sort of similar, although obviously very different from, you know, when lizard tails, if you are like skinks, for example, if you oh, yeah. grab onto a skink's tail, this, and, and I, I accidentally did this once myself because I had a skink in our house, grabbed onto it thinking I was put it outside and it ejected its tail and the tail keeps moving. Right. And it's, and it, yeah. it keeps moving so that the predator sees it is attracted to it and stops paying attention to the actual skink and is focused on this tail. Um, so 
this may be a mechanism for helping the mother survive. Um, and other kangaroos it's been observed in. So in the swamp wallaby, it's been observed to also happen. And in the Eastern gray kangaroo, it's been observed to also happen. Hmm. So, you know, it, it sounds heartless and it is because as, you know, human beings, we would never, you know, any mother and I'm a mother could, could tell you that we would, you know, jump in front of a, a, a bus or a train for our child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it from a survival standpoint, if a quokka can have up to 17 or even more young, up to even maybe even 30 in some cases, if they're reproducing twice a year, uh, mm -hmm. young in a, you know, if they can have that many young, an offspring, but at that moment, they're gonna be predated on and killed by a fox. You know, that mm -hmm. young isn't going to be able to survive without them. And so ultimately, yeah. it's that mother who has to survive to see another day, to reproduce another offspring. Um, and so it's it, it sounds extremely heartless and, you know, it is a little bit, but on some level, it is part of, you know, a survival mechanism. And, and similar things happen mm -hmm. even in, in, you know, deer or people, right? If you are severely dehydrated, yeah. you cannot produce milk. And the, mm -hmm. basically the, it's so that you are preserving your life. And yes, it's, yeah. it's going to affect your young. Um, but essentially, you know, sort of the mother, unfortunately, comes first. And this is just such a foreign concept to to humans because mm -hmm. you know we 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 think very differently about these things from a survival standpoint. Yeah. It's it's pretty <laughs> normal. No, and I yeah, suppose it does make sense. I suppose it's yeah. There's a certain logic to you can see how natural selection would would cause that to happen because if if you are a uh, mom quokka who doesn't do that, you don't have the muscle contraction or whatever in your, in your pouch and you get eaten and your children get eaten. Well, those genes aren't passed on, but if you were one where that was, you know, your reaction uh, and you survive to live another day and to, to reproduce and to have more offspring, that, that it does make sense. There's a certain logic to it. It, yeah, I guess it's, it's more the Vulcan way of looking at it. Um, most of the declines that we're seeing in quokka populations is happening on the mainland. So they used to be far more widely distributed. Um, and this was, you know, throughout time. So when we look at fossil evidence um, in various caves, we see lots of quokkas. Um, when I go to the Western Australian Museum, that's part of what actually got me interested in the quokka was I was looking through the drawers for other fossils. And when I went to the mammoth cave fossils and I'm looking through these drawers, I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds of quokka jaws. I mean, so, tons, you couldn't believe it. And so granted, these are accumulating over thousands of years, but still they were abundant on the landscape. Um, we know that they were abundant even up until, you know, sometime early, uh, you know, around the 1920s or 1930s, and after which point they started to decline pretty dramatically. Um, and, you know, one thing I want to also mention is that, you know, quokkas were um, hunted um, by Aboriginal uh, people um, in Australia, but the Aboriginals also helped maintain their habitat in some ways. So they were um, also doing sort of uh, burning and having um, somewhat frequent burns, uh, low intensity burns in their habitat is actually very beneficial to them. So it provides sort of this mosaic vegetation that they prefer um, and are able to sort of exist in. And um, so they were hunted, you know, probably earlier on uh, in more recent times, but 
their populations were still sort of stable and very abundant. And this was really up until, you know, Europeans had a large impact on these populations. So, um, you know, Europeans came over to Australia and not only did they directly um, hunt quokkas, we, we've heard of things like quokka shoots, um, but they also had lots of indirect impacts. And it's really these indirect impacts that have prevailed as um, to have dramatic negative consequences on these quokkas. So those indirect impacts are things like invasive species, most notably the fox. So Europeans brought over all sorts of things that they wanted to see in this new land to them. Uh, and didn't really quite realize what those impacts would be. And unfortunately, invasive species has really um, wreaked havoc on Australia and Ireland. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that. But essentially, you know, they brought these things like goats and rabbits, uh, foxes, um, et cetera, onto the island. And these things have really wreaked havoc on lots of the native animals there, um, and also rabbits and things on the vegetation. So. You have these invasive species um, that have been brought over, but also you have habitat fragmentation, development in these areas. And then on top of all of this, you have climate change. And climate change is having two sort of large impacts. One is you're having increased aridification and drought that's resulting. The other is you're having more intense fire. So fire inherently is not bad for quokkas, it's actually good but intense fires are bad. So there's a recent study that was done that actually looked at um, sort of the uh, fire intensity. And so it looked at the percent of unburned areas, the size of those unburned areas. And when you had larger proportions of unburned areas and larger unburned areas, you actually had the quokkas coming back to recolonize the areas quicker. Um, but when you had really intense fires and scarring um, uh, and, and large, you know, large, fi large fires reaching into the crown and whatnot, um, then there was actually a, it would take a long time for the quokkas to come back into those areas if they ever did. And some areas that were impacted by large fires back in 2015 have yet to see quokkas return to those areas. And, and your study, um, you know, it's it's very interesting. Like like we mentioned earlier, the the connection between like present day conservation and the paleobiology piece is just really, really, really interesting. I mean, it, it makes yeah, sense. It's, it's kind cool. of like the, you know, looking at history. History repeats itself, kind of thing. And um, it's just it's just really neat <laughs> to look at like the hybrid of it and how it can be applied. Um, yeah. And so so. Yes, uh, go ahead. I was going to say that um, that's exactly why we got interested in the quokka is you know, we sort of looked at everything and said, quokkas are really abundant on Rottnest Island. And we're talking about upwards of eight or 10,000 quokkas on this tiny little island that's only 11 kilometers in length. Um, so a very high population. Bald Island, um, which is closer to Albany, um, is has maybe around 600, maybe close to 1,000. It's not quite, there's rough estimates of how many quokkas, but much smaller than Rottnest Island. And mainland populations are, um, sort of more debatable. It's, it's, it's really kind of unknown, the exact numbers of these quokka populations. What we do know is that they are declining, which is why they have been um, listed as a uh, vulnerable and threatened species, according to the IUCN.
Um, so, but when we looked at all of this, you know, it made most sense that foxes, which we know predate on small to medium sized native Australian mammals, likely were the cause of their decline. Because essentially, um, as things started to form, Rottnest Island and Bald Island uh, became isolated from the mainland. And so um, you have persistence of these quokkas where the foxes aren't, and you have very small declining populations where the foxes are. And what we were interested in looking at is not only are there differences between the mainland populations and the island populations, but also are there differences between the mainland populations that we can study from the fossils and the mainland populations that we can study today. So in order to do this, you really need museums. Um, and so it's the museums that housed these fossil specimens, but they also housed the modern specimens that have been collected over the years. So we could essentially look at these quokkas over space and time, looking at these museum specimens. And so what we do specifically is we don't just actually look at the specimens, we actually analyze um, their teeth. And so we do that in two ways. One way is we take a mold of their tooth and make a cast and look at it under a microscope, much like they do when you have, you know, a, a dental impression done for braces or a crown or whatnot. And we actually can analyze the wear patterns of that too. So we can see whether the animal was eating lots of grass or whether they were eating lots of browse. Browse are things like leaves and shrubs. Um, but we can also drill their teeth. So we can drill, we drill their, you know, their incisor um, and take a little bit of that enamel and we can chemically analyze that. And what that can tell us is the types of plants the animal was eating. So we can tell whether they were eating sort of C3, trees and shrubs, or C4. In the case of the quokka, we knew pretty much that they were eating C3 foods, um, but we can also look at the density of the environments they're occupying. And that's because um, sort of you have these leaves which have little stomata on the bottom and those open up to conduct photosynthesis. And when you, you being a tree, <laughs> when a tree is in sort of a dense forest, it's going to open its stomata more and have potentially more stomata and it's gonna let more CO2 in. And so what happens is you have this sort of like filtering effect. So, you know, if I were holding my arms out in a loop and I had you throw, um, you know, little tiny balls in and bat large basketballs in and I kept it open for a long time, it's more likely that what gets through that, that loop are the tiny balls. And so um, similar kind of analogy, you basically have the smaller isotopes um, that sort of get through, create sort of this filtering effect. And so what happens is you get these really negative stable isotope values in these dense forests or the dense shrubs, and you get more open, sort of more positive values in these more open ecosystems. So we can actually recreate sort of the density of the vegetation that they were consuming um, when they were alive, which is really cool. And so when we did this, we actually found out a few things, which is um, there is no reason there, we were curious, is there some environmental reason why quokkas um, are declining? Is their habitat no longer present? Is something happening? And what we found was, the answer to that was, was no. 
um, that these animals should be present, that when they're on rottenness, they're doing fine. They're actually eating sort of even tougher foods than they would normally eat uh, in the past. Um, but what we also learned was that they tended to be found in a little bit more open, more mosaic um, ecosystems in the past, so about 30,000 years ago, as compared to today. So when they are present on the mainland today, they are only found in these really sort of dense kind of shrubby environments, or that is critical to their habitat, that they are associated with these habitats. And they tend to be eating vegetation within these fairly dense habitats as well. And so that, that suggests to us that that may be, you know, um, necessary to avoid predation. Um, but if foxes were not in the picture, they would likely be just fine and, and be able to exist um, pretty well in these sort of more mosaic, slightly more open habitats. And understanding what they did in the past is really critical because if we're basing conservation decisions based on just what we see today, right, which what quokkas are doing on the mainland is a function of all of these things, habitat fragmentation, uh, foxes on the or foxes on the mainland, etc., um, and we're making decisions just based on that. Then we might think, oh, we need to preserve just this dense vegetation. Well, yes, we need to do that when foxes are present. But if we can eradicate foxes in certain areas, then these mosaic habitats are really what quokkas um, were sort of, you know, eating their vegetation in in the fairly, you know, the not too distant past. Here's the thing about um, fossils. I mean, they can tell you so much about geography, about biology, about evolution. In fact, um, it's actually one of those things that I'm focusing on in, in a class right now, actually in a unit on evolution, um, is looking at the fossil record. What can we learn about animals, not just... Um, not just not just their structure, but their behavior, their overall appearance, their their sociality. There are so many things that you you might look at a fossil and say, how could they possibly put this information together? Um, but there are ways, there are methods, and um, it's nothing less than absolutely mind-bogglingly fascinating. Oh, absolutely, and you know things like DNA, right? So. A century ago, that wasn't even something that, I mean, we didn't even know about DNA, right? And so we, we understood how animals were related based on sort of shape and form, what they look like. But now we can actually take this tiny little bit of, you know, that actual specimen and begin to put together how all of these animals are related. And this is also providing us incredible insights about, you know, um, what genes do what in different groups. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but the other thing is, you, as you mentioned, the importance of these things um, in, in these museums. So as part of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Code of Ethics, um, so to be a member of the society, you have to agree to this code of ethics. And it is part of this agreement that you are only going to publish on specimens that are held in a public trust, so a museum. Um, and this is because if I've proposed something about, you know, the quokka, and someone wants to come around and, and actually reanalyze these specimens or actually say they want to do ancient DNA on the same specimens I um, sampled for isotopes in microware. Well, they can go back to that museum collection and go back to that exact specimen, look at it, photograph it, sample it, study it. And we can begin to, you know, not only reevaluate and retest hypotheses that have been proposed, um, but we can also build on, 
on the data that we're generating. Um, and so it's actually, you can't publish on specimens that are held in private collections. And you know, most paleontologists will advocate uh, the importance to you know, everyone to you know, have fossils in the public trust so that they are really everybody's fossil. Uh, we can all learn from them we can all benefit from them as opposed to having them in, in private hands where hypotheses can't be tested. You can't guarantee that you can go back to that specimen. Um, so you can't really do science uh, when specimens are in private collections. So it just goes to show the real importance of having these fossils um, in actual public collections. And that's all that we um, will ever publish on. Before we end this episode, though, we do have one more special surprise. Trivia with our guest, Dr. Larissa DeSantis. Sure. All right. Well, you've been uh, talking to us a lot about quokkas, and one of the things that they are most famous for is the quokka selfie. Um, so we're going to ask you three questions about selfies, kind of. All right. The first question is, how many people died for selfies between 2011 and 2017? Is it 259, 359, or 159? Ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, so I don't know this, but I am, I'm going to go with the high number. I, I just keep hearing of lots of not too smart um, things people are doing to get selfies. So I'm going to go with 359. So, you know, we could, we could, we'll half give it to you because it is 259, but that is from a study that was published in 2018. So there's been two years of data since then, and there has been an uptick. So who knows it, it could be, but there was 259 deaths across 137 incidents, which means that there were some incidents where multiple people died taking a selfie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, let's see what country leads the way in selfie deaths. Is it Russia? India or the United States? Uh, I'm going to give that, well, I'm going to give that one to the U.S. Close, but oh, also not. It's, yeah, I see Richard it was the U.S. Know. too. I was like so <laughs> certain it was the U.S. It's, it's India. India, okay. Uh, followed by Russia, followed by the United States. But, you know, what's sort of unfair about that is that's also kind of... Uh, uh, have when you look at country size, population. yeah, country size and population and proportionality, um, in proportionality, the U.S. actually leads. So, so per capita, the U.S. is in the lead. Yeah, per capita. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Who is the celebrity who is given credit for popularizing uh, Rottnest Island and Quokka selfies? Is it tennis player Roger Federer, Chris Hemsworth of Thor and many other movies? Or is it David Beckham, soccer player? So I'm definitely going to say Chris Hemsworth on that because, uh, yeah, his Quokka selfies have really made it popular. And I actually have another fact to share real quick. Sure. Uh, yeah. The selfie, does anyone know where the name selfie came from? What country? No. Australia. No, no. Uh, which really? actually, uh, for someone who visits Australia, everything has a cute name in Australia. There's like even their their health insurance has like a cute name. Um, so they always <laughs> add like an O or an A or an IE to a lot of words, you know, there's so, uh, <laughs> I wasn't surprised when selfie was from Australia. Petrol, selfie. <laughs> Petrol. <laughs> yeah. uh, that it is, 
Chris Hemsworth has definitely done a lot for the popularity, but originally, this is really bizarre, it was Roger Federer. And to make it even weirder, it was a part of an elaborate plan. It wasn't even an accidental thing. He was working with the local tourism department who thought that if he posted pictures uh, on Rottenest Island, that mm-hmm. it would gain in popularity. That was wow, the okay. Last guess. I would have guessed David Beckham next. I would have never guessed Roger Federer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Apparently, <laughs> apparently he's the one who, who uh, brought, brought uh, the initial fame to it. And then Chris Hemsworth is kind of, uh, you know. Taking it, taking it to a new level. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes, taking it to a completely new level. Hey, guess what? I'll say, I'll say, we'll count, we'll count it by technicality, and you do win the prize for one of our members. Great, wonderful, good, good, good. Yeah. So, so on the topic of Chris Hemsworth, um, I just wanted to. I know that you're trying to get who is it, Ryan Ryan Reynolds on your show. Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm actually trying to get a famous Aussie to help narrate a children's book that will be provided to all children free, downloadable. Um, it's actually mm. about the quokka. So we are in the pro- final stages of producing this children's book, um, which I'm, I'm not going to say the name of it because it's pre-copyright. We're going through the copyright process sure. right now, but it's a really fun book about a cheeky quokka and sort of other uh, animals that are vulnerable in Western Australia. Um, it'll be available online as PDFs that you can download. Also, we're looking for a famous Australian to narrate it. So, you know, if, if Chris Hemsworth or, you know, Nicole, Keith, Hugh, Rebel, any of you want to uh, donate five minutes to your time, read this children's book, and it'll be available to everyone in the world for free. Um, and especially we're hoping to educate um, and, and sort of give back as part of the broader impacts of our National Science Foundation grant to the, the local community. So we really want the, the children in you know the local areas, uh, in Perth, yeah. in Margaret River, uh, those who visit Rottenest Island, um, to know about these amazing animals. And all of uh, the Quokka's friends, who things like the woolly, the, the bilby, the numbat, um, honey possums, things that you might not be aware of, those are all featured in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, it'll, it, it's a lot of fun and, um, actually produced it. I got to produce it with my, uh, two daughters who helped with the illustrations, um, during, you oh, know, COVID cool. quarantine time. So, um, we're really hoping that kids can benefit from this book, um, and enjoy it while we're all sort of quarantined. Thank you so much for listening today. And thank you again to our guest, Dr. Larissa DeSantis. Be sure to check out the episode notes and, uh, our website, thewildlife.blog for, more updates, more information, and uh, some extras, some bonus content, such as a children's ebook, some art, and some other fun things. If you would like to support our show, our nonprofit, help us to continue doing the things that we do, you can do that at patreon.com slash the wildlife. Also, one last thing before you go, if you have it in your time, in the next 30 seconds, especially if you're listening somewhere like Apple Podcasts, Leave us a rating, leave us a comment, let us know how we're doing, but also those ratings help uh, not just not just us you know, for, for planning and, and for, for feedback, but also for our position in charts, which means that if we move up, more people can find us, more people can join in on the Wildling family, and, um, and our community grows, which is, um, which is awesome. 
I'm Devin Boker. This is A Wildlife. Stay tuned. Thank you.